Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. This is episode 217. I am your host, as always, Cameron English, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, sitting in for Kevin Folta as he becomes a dad, which is always very exciting. Liza, how are you? Nice to see you again. It's good to be here. Good to see you, Cameron. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, we've got uh, some pretty intensive stories to cover today. So instead of our, our small talk and banter, let's just jump right into these because there's some stuff I definitely want to pick your brain about. So here we go. First up, a me- uh, AI medical assistants, chat GPT answers patient questions with more empathy than human doctors. Next up, are endocrine disrupting chemicals causing a decline in fertility in men? Here's how ideology corrupts evidence-based science. And finally, Cruelty-free, lab-grown mini-organs could dramatically reduce need for animal testing in drug development. So, like I said, these are intensive, very complicated stories, really important edges that we need to get to in these. But this first story, uh, it's based on a really interesting study that was just published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Um, And the article itself is by Danielle Ellis, writing for UC San Diego Today. So, basically, what these researchers did is they took 195 um, interactions between physicians and members of the general public from a Reddit subreddit called Ask Docs. So people submit their questions. They say, hey, you know, how does my, you know, how does my liver work? Tell, you know what I mean? Something like that. And then the, the physicians respond. So they took 195 of these. They gave the same question to this AI program that everyone's going on about, ChatGPT. They gave them the question and they asked the program to write an answer to the question. Then they took the 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 AI's answer and the actual physician's answer from the Reddit subthread, subthread or subreddit, excuse me, and they gave it to a panel of three physicians, and they said rate these answers to these questions based on um, the quality of the information and the level of empathy expressed in the answer. And the headline grabbing result that they found was that 79% of responses from the program were preferred over the answers from actual doctors, right? So you can imagine this is this is radical, right? Everyone's going, oh no, is this is this AI thing a better doctor than my doctor kind of a thing? Um, so so there's lots of details, lots of nooks and crannies to explore here, but only one of us is a physician. So I'm very, very curious to get your input on this, Liza. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting study. And the reason why I think it's so interesting is because it actually is highlighting a um, a big issue in medicine right now, and that is the limited amount of time that physicians have to spend with their patients. So um, initially, when AI um, programs started coming out um, and patients would get online and give a list of symptoms that they were having, um, the, 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 the response would be a differential diagnosis of what this could be. So patients were, you know, checking with Dr. Google to to come up with a diagnosis. And Dr. Google was often very broad and often very wrong and often scared the living daylights out of their patients. (laughs) Not only would they say, well, 
this could just be, you know, a, a mild cold, but you could also have metastatic cancer. So patients would get very, very scared. And so I always had sort of big doubts about um, the benefit of AI and a, a computer um, in managing uh, a patient's patients just in general. But this actually turns out to be really interesting because doctors' time is so limited now because of all of the requirements they have to fill out paperwork. We've become quite literally data entry clerks in, in, in our careers, right? So you have requirements to fill out paperwork for um, insurance companies. You have to get pre-authorization before you do a procedure. You have to get pre-authorization before you prescribe um, certain um, pharmaceuticals. Um, and so you're filling out paperwork and filling out paperwork so much that your time is getting more and more limited. You also have to see a certain number of patients during the day and you have to enter in all sorts of data about that patient encounter in order for you to get reimbursed for seeing that patient. Um, and that is very um, onerous. In fact, there's a, a term in the medical world of uh, pajama time where physicians after seeing patients will go home and spend two to three hours documenting the, into just minute detail of, of what, have, what, what transpired in, in a patient um, encounter. Now, so that's kind of the setting. With electronic medical records, Patients now also have patient portals where they can go and look up their lab results and they can look up their, um, uh, their uh, x-ray results and, and their studies um, and then directly contact the doctor. So now the doctor is also doing a lot of email responding to the patients on top of documenting everything. And sometimes the patients see scary diagnoses before the physician actually has time to see it. So, for example, I have a good friend who's an oncologist who's left oh, her man. clinical practice because she would often, she would be getting so much email from patients that she couldn't actually do her clinical work um, right. because they were very justifiably scared. So now you layer on that, you know, you're supposed to give, a, you've got somebody with a scary diagnosis um, who is needing some compassion and needing some interaction and more time from the doctor. Um, and when the doctor is so busy with multiple patients with the same kind of problem, right? And each patient needs that extra little, extra empathy. Um, it's very hard to keep up with all of the requirements of documentation and all the administrative responsibilities and also um, have a moving, meaningful conversation with a patient. And this is one of the reasons, this I would say is probably the biggest reason for physician burnout at this stage is that they, they feel like they're no longer able to interact with their patients. This chat GPT thing, however, may be able to help offset some of that. So, so you could give a correct and empathetic answer without um, you know, without having to add so much more time, it may be a time saver. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's funny you mentioned, you know, patients getting these confusing messages. Cause I, I remember recently I had to go to, uh, cause it was outside like normal business hours. I went to, um, uh, what are they called? Not, not, I went to the ER later, but I went to one of these urgent, ur care. urgent, urgent care. Yeah. So I went to one of these places. I saw one doctor and then I went to the ER and saw another doctor. And then I followed up with my GP and the two first doctors I saw, they both prescribed different medications. 
So I went to my doctor. I was like, what do I do here? Presumably I shouldn't take both of these at the same time. Right. <laughs> and she was like, go with the, the urgent care people. They know what they're doing. And I was like, okay. But like, it was still sort of concerning. Cause I'm like, why did you come to that decision? <laughs> you know? Yes. So, so yeah. maybe this is a situation, by the way, I'm obviously fine. Right. I didn't die. Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But I could see a situation like that where you have a program, if it's properly developed, could go, oh, here, you know, here's what they weren't telling you. Go with this. Right. So, That's so, right. Yeah. So I, anyways, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that they, you could you could have um, definitely sort of this is if you have a choice between these two drugs and right. it, it, this is the diagnosis, this is probably the better drug for that diagnosis. Sure. Um, now, there may, may be a reason that we don't know why a physician prescribes one drug over the other. There are also also in terms of safety, there's certain drugs that you don't want to mix together. Right. And so it'd be really important for, you know, uh, preventing adverse drug interactions right. um, and, and that kind of thing. So th that kind of thing would be useful. I think it does need some oversight because a lot of physicians use drugs off, off label oh, for yeah. a variety of things. So for a medical toxicologist, um, you know, we don't do double blind controlled studies on poison patients because he, it, it's unethical to poison patients to get your data, right? right. So uh, the reason we prescribe lots of drugs that are off label, but work, right? And so a, 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 an AI generated um, machine might not get understand why, for example, we would prescribe you know, high dose insulin, really high dose insulin for patients who have a calcium channel blocker overdose. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it, it wouldn't be the sort of classic thing that you'd find a, a whole bunch of studies, once again, randomized double blind controlled pharmaceutical studies to support this, but it actually does have benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that in those kinds of situations, it could be complicated. Interesting. By the way, everyone, I know I'm blurry. I'm really sorry. I'm trying to get this, trying to get it fixed. My face might just be blurry and you'll have to endure. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, there we go. I think I fixed it. Okay. Anyways, back to, back to AI medicine. Okay. So um, there's something else that really stuck out to me. And as we've said before on this show, there's the press release, there's the news story based on the press release, and then there's the nitty gritty of the study, um, which you'll often find in the discussion section, which I refer to as the come to Jesus section, because this is where all the it's where all the true facts are that they don't want to promote. So here's one of those. And to their credit, it's in the paper, so they're not trying to hide it. But they write that um, the study's evaluators, the three, the three physicians on this panel, um, despite being blinded to the source of a response and any initial results, um, they were also co-authors of the study which could have biased their assessments of, of what they're looking at, right? Because they know that they're comparing an AI answer to a real doctor's. They may not know which one, but they're still privy to the design of the study, which could be a problem. Then they also say the additional length of the chatbot responses could have been erroneously associated with greater empathy. And this is the part that really stuck out to me, Liza. Evaluators do not assess the chatbot responses for accuracy or fabricated information. Now, especially in this age when everyone is flipping out about misinformation, this seems to be like a no-duh, right? This should be a baseline of what you're checking for is whether the information is correct, right? And what am I missing there? So, no, that's exactly right. So, you want to make sure that you that this chat box has not got all sorts of 
um, input that's recommending alternative medicine therapies or things like that. And that's given, you know, the, the same weight as, you know, something that's really been studied well, right? So the, the, is, there's that, that issue, but there's also the issue that medicine changes, clinical medicine changes. So in the early 2000s in ICU patients, um, there was a big study that suggested that ICU patients did better if they had their sugar under control and, and very tight control between 80 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. And that had a big mortality benefit in those patients. So in the ICUs, everybody was, you know, doing that. And then five, 10 years later, another study came out and said, well, it doesn't really have that big of a mortality benefit, but it helps with protect the kidneys. Um, so a morbidity benefit, but the mortality benefit seemed to go away over that decade. Um, and then later on, they did another study uh, repeating exactly the same protocol. And it turned out that maybe that mortality and the morbidity benefit weren't so great. And it was actually um, harming patients because their sugars were going too low. So when you've got an evolution in in the clinical findings, and these are in gold, these are gold standard studies in at top tier universities um, or academic institutions that are just sort of changing practice. How do you incorporate that into your AI? And so that's where protocol-based medicine doesn't quite always work as well. And, and you'd, you'd have to, you know, stay on top of the literature, not only making sure that you've got the right literature going in, but as the literature evolves and as you learn, um, you're, you're not, you're not using practices that actually could be harmful. Yeah. Yeah, this is just a fascinating question. It, it just sounds like there's a lot of potential here, but if this is misused or it's not appropriately regulated, this could be really gnarly. And just one thing that occurs to me, and it seems realistic, is that you could have uh, one of these programs programmed to give an answer that's accurate, but is also intended to cut costs, right? I could see Medicare imp implementing that or an insurance company, especially insurance companies. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could see, right, and, I, and I'm sure you can share my frustration there, right? I could see them saying, well, there's two drugs. This one is, you know, 12 cents cheaper per pill. Let's give this one, even though it might not be the ideal treatment for this patient. That could be a problem. I could see a lawyer having the same realization and going, I'm going to recruit 10,000 people to this class, and then we're going to sue the pants off of, you know, Kaiser or Aetna or one of these big companies, and we're going to make a killing, whether or not it's a legitimate complaint, you know. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that that's really important. Yeah, you know, you can program, you can program for cheap stuff, but sometimes people are put on specific pharmaceuticals because of their particular problem. Sometimes the medicine is better for their kidneys. Sometimes the medicine is better for their, you know, uh, blood pressure. And, and so the reason why you pick a certain medicine, even if it, it may be more expensive, maybe because it's the it's it's better for the patient and you've already tried the patient on a, several other drugs that didn't work as well. So, um, th th so there's that. Then, then, you know, when you've got standard of care issues, right? Um, often standards of care, they're, 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 they're discussions about what is actual standard of care. And once again, that can be an evolution as people learn more about taking care of a certain disease process, right? Mm -hmm. But that's also an avenue for um, lawyers to be able to do class action suits or sue a hospital because they, they say, well, you didn't abide by this standard of care because of this guideline. But the AI machine, you know, has said that that wasn't necessarily the standard of care based on an argument. Now, so 
for the longest time, for example, in spinal cord injury, um, you were kind of damned if you did and damned if you didn't. So if you gave steroids, um, there was some evidence that it's improved outcomes, not much. And then there, if you didn't give steroids, um, there was some evidence that you had less risk of infection, right? And so, so lawyers were able to use the, the kind of the disagreement, the scientific disagreement about the, the, the quality of mm. data around steroids to be able to take that, that kind of thing to court. Um, and so you could technically probably do the same thing with this kind of thing. Yeah. Lawyers and insurance companies making the world worse since, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, one of, this just occurs to me too, is that there may be situations where the problem isn't a response from a doctor, but it just could be like the policy is really screwed up, you know? So, you know, you could write into this program and go, I crushed both my knees in a car accident. Can I have more medicine for pain control? And like, what's the thing going to say? Like, no, sorry, the DEA might uh, lock up your doctor if they give you medicine. That's medically necessary. Have a nice life, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, so yeah. there's there's real policy issues. There's supply issues. There's expense issues, you know, like $1,000 a month to insure your kid. Like, there's a lot of problems this is not going to fix. And not that they've implied that it will. I'm just saying, you know, uh, healthcare is really messy these days. So It is very messy. Okay. All right. Well, lots of stuff to think about. Go read the JAMA paper. It's actually open access and it's not too technical. So I think you'll get more out of it than just reading the news stories that have been floating around. It's but, kind of a fun read for a medical journal. <laughs> yeah. 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 All things considered, you know, there's, there's not too many P values and statistics and so forth. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to this next story. This one is, uh, this one was interesting, but frustrating, frustrating to read. So this is Dr. Jeffrey Cabot, who uh, has been on the show before, as I mentioned last week. He's writing for a genetic literacy project. This is originally from uh, June 2022, and it's called Are Endocrine Disrupting Chemicals Causing a Decline in Fertility in Men? Here's how ideology corrupts, uh, corrupts evidence-based medicine. Okay, so what he's talking about here is there's, there's um, a pretty well-established consensus, I believe, that uh, sperm counts are declining in the Western world, in America, in Canada, um, Australia, so forth, these, these types of places. Sperm counts are declining. There's pretty good research on that. Um, and this is potentially serious, right? Because if you have declining sperm counts, you might have declining fertility, which means you have a declining population, which means there's nobody to build your house and grow your food, stock your grocery store shelves, produce the medicines and so forth, right? Right. This could be really bad over time if, if we don't address it. So uh, Cabot is responding here, though, to a team of researchers from uh, MIT and Harvard and they're, they're led by a, a pair of philosophy professors. So these are not physicians. They're not fertility experts. They're not endocrinologists. These, right, these are people that seem to be working outside of their expertise to a certain extent. And they reject this hypothesis of declining sperm, uh, ex, yeah, declining sperm counts, excuse me. Lots of terms spinning around in my head. Now, they're not saying we have alternative data and we think there's a problem with this hypothesis. What they're saying, and this is a direct quote from an article they wrote for Slate, I believe. They say, uh, far-right great replacement theorists who feared that people of color are replacing the white population have taken up their research with gusto. So in other words, their concern, their primary concern is not that this this hypothesis is wrong, but they don't like the political implications of it. And we don't really have to talk about that here. It's not really relevant to what we're talking about, frankly. Um, 
But I, but that's so that's their driver. Now their alternative hypothesis is that sperm counts fluctuate throughout an individual's life, and this could be due to you know different social or economic factors. It could be due to environmental influences and so forth. But the basic idea is there isn't there isn't like a, an appropriate sperm count, right? It goes up and down, and it's okay. You know, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. This and that. This this is their argument. Um, Cabot is having none of this, right? So, so, and he's he's really good at this in that he, for the most part, he seems to follow the evidence wherever it goes. And this yeah. gets him in trouble sometimes, which I really appreciate. That even if it has consequences for him, he goes, "I don't care. I this is this is what the evidence shows." Um, so, the authors are also very clear about their bias. This is not me adding to what they say. And this is actually another quote. This is from their. Uh, <laughs> This is from their website. So it's called the Gender Lab, which is where they do all this research. So they write, um, we're engaged in the intersectional study of gender in the biomedical and allied sciences, specializing in analyzing bias and hype in the sciences of sex, gender, reproduction, and intersectional study of race, gender, and science. Okay, so right, so they're coming to this with a sort of postmodern, you know, anti-colonialism sort of sort of a perspective. This is not data-driven. Um, I'll stop there and then give give me your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think this is an interesting um, discussion too. First of all, I think there there are there is a debate around whether or not there is a significant um, impact of you know decreased uh, you know sperm production. There have been articles spermageddon, spermageddon canceled, and a whole variety of different um, discussions around this topic. What we do know is that it, it you know. Fertility has been decreasing in in the West, right? And 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 and, and developed countries, so Japan, um, U.S., uh, uh, the EU, uh, you know, people are having less babies now. A lot of people say, "Oh, that's because you know you're well fed and you there there's you know availability of the pill and people are older when they start having babies, so that decreases for fertility and a whole variety of things that can go into it." Now there are probably some things that are causing you know changes in sperm count as well um, that we aren't a hundred percent clear on. What we do know though is that this debate is intensely political, right? <laughs> and so and intensely polarized, and so people will often make claims in one direction or the other. Depend on their depending on their political persuasions um, or their personal beliefs. So what you will find, um, like Greenpeace saying in a Spermageddon article from 2021, you're not half the man your father was. Oh <laughs> and Greenpeace is making the claim that, and and same with the authors um, in in, in uh, this study that came out in Environmental Health Perspectives that was then repeated in um, by Swan in 2017 um, in in a reproduction journal. Um, the, the claim was that you know plastics and and you know. Uh, endocrine disruptor synthetic endocrine disruptors like flame retardants and things like that might be causing the decrease in sperm count um well you know they're, they're, we we don't have solid evidence to say that that's the case right that, that so those are all just sort of allegations um on the flip side um if you can't just then say well no that's not true and this is we 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 just believe that this is uh, you know based on the, the patriarchy um, and, and concern of, about the West, um, you know, they, you, you can't just say 
throw away any scientific discussion and say that this is and, and shape it in a in a part of as part of the culture war. Um, you need to have a scientific basis for your claim, and I'm not seeing a scientific basis for their claim. I think that they they say that they're not quite as worried. Fine, give us a scientific reason for why you're not quite as worried. Um, so so both sides. What's interesting is I tend to think of the the um, side that's very concerned about plastics and things like that um, <laughs> as as maybe also going to be in in the the same kind of wheelhouse as, as these latest yeah. um, authors. So I just I, I think that it's a kind of unique um, perspective. Um, but once again, it's it's not not based in science. Associations are not causation. Um, and I think that both sides of this are, are being completely blown out of proportion. Yeah. Let me try to fix my blurriness here. Let's That's see. Okay. I don't know. I don't there care as much. Okay. No, All right. I'm back. Go. Okay. So again, there's so much to say here. I, I have to say, and I've said this on this show, I've said it on talking biotech with, with Kevin on his, his other podcast. I've said it in writing the, the, the social justice movement, whatever you think of it, the way that they have attacked the scientific enterprise drives me bananas because their motivation is truth is determined by lived experience. Different people groups have their own truth. They have their own way of knowing. And that is, there's an eight letter word. I'm not going to say it. All right. That's just nonsense. Yeah. It's highly problematic. Yes. Yeah. It's very problematic to say that you have your own truth. You do not. And if you think that you can't listen to this podcast when we talk about science. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, that, that's the first thing. It drives me absolutely bananas. Um, because on the one hand, they're trying to say, I'm rejecting your hypothesis, your empirical analysis of what's going on here. I reject that, but I reject it because I don't believe that there's such a thing as objective truth. Or at least I don't believe that you can get at the objective truth because you're trying to you know, preserve your power with your rhetorics and your blah, blah. You know, I just... I have yes. no, I have no time for this. I have real books and real things to learn. Go go away. Exactly. That, yeah. That said, I am willing to engage with people who have a completely different opinion than me. Yeah. Um, if if they are willing to have a discussion, because I want to know, I want to I want to fact check myself. I want to make sure I have the latest and most up to date information. Because, like I said in the earlier segment, where we're talking about how how things evolve, how science evolves, science is an, is an iterative process. It's really important to be able to have scientific debate. But once it gets into ad hominem attacks and once it gets into just, you know, pure speculation, that pure speculation and ad hominem attacks are not the same thing as a robust scientific discussion where you come to an understanding, a greater understanding about, um, you know, the, the truth of something. Yeah. And, and I should add, I, I wholeheartedly endorse that, but I should also add uh, Cabot gives them credit because they, in the process of developing this goofy, you know, postmodernist theory of, of infertility, they reject the idea that there are these synthetic chemicals that are causing endocrine disruption. Um, and he, and they actually make some interesting, interesting observations. So one of the points that they make is that in India, where environmental pollution is significantly higher because they're a, they're a poorer country than, say, Canada or the United States, um, their fertility is higher than ours, which is interesting. So, so that would seem to indicate that it's not environmental pollutants, however you define those, that are causing the problem. There's got to be something else. So if they were to make those sorts of observations and say, let's investigate what those are, that would be great. I, I think that would be enhancing the scientific conversation. 
Um, but that's not what they're doing. They're trying to just say, I don't like where this is going, so let's stick our fingers in our ears. And that is very, very dangerous. Exactly. Well, I mean, I have this thing about this notion that flame retardants are causing all sorts of problems. I mm-hmm. would personally prefer not my not to have my children burn up in a fire. Mm-hmm. And I personally prefer, um, you know, firefighters to be able to put out airplane fires. And there are, yes. you know, where this whole PFAS discussion is coming from. Right. And that's why it's so it's, it's these they're they're these other this other group is making all of these wild claims that are not that are that are allegations with no clear evidence of a scientific um, interaction there that I think puts public people at at risk, public health at risk. You know, I think I think there's something like three thousand people die in fires every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can't put out fires adequately because of allegations in you know in in the literature that are also not validated, um, I, I get very concerned about that. So it goes both ways. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. And, and Cabot he says at the top of the article, but it's a good summation. He says. The lesson, ignoring evidence-based science in favor of preferred views, however well intended, can have devastating consequences. The examples you just gave are great. I don't want to be on an airplane where there aren't flame retardants. I don't want to be in a hospital that doesn't have a blood, an ample blood supply because they're not allowed to use plastic blood bags. You know what yep. I mean? I don't want to use medicine that doesn't work. Like when my son has a fever, I want to give him ibuprofen to control his fever. I don't want this, this homeopathic... Bullshit. Water. I'll say it. I'll say it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't. I just, you know what I mean? Like, like I want things that are going to keep me healthy and that are going to make life better for more people. Yes, and, we're living in a time with unprecedented abundance and luxury. Mm-hmm. Unprecedented, and people forget what it was like to live with roach-infested, lice-infested. Uh, you know. Uh, unclean water and things like that. We And we've gotten so used to our quality of life that we're ready to jettison the things that actually have helped protect public health. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very important. So, and I guess, cause I started to rant there for a second, that is the takeaway, right? Is that there are real consequences, you know, you, you may like to virtue signal, you may like to morally preen about how, how much more progressive you are. But if, if you put yourself in harm's way, you know, it's not yeah. worth it to me. It's not worth it to me. So anyways, I highly recommend that article. It's very, very good. Um, Cabot stuff usually is because, like I said, he seems to he's pretty much right up and down the middle in terms of, of calling balls and strikes. So, yeah. OK, but let's move on to our, our last story here. This one, uh, again, I think you're going to have a lot of insight here. So this is called cruelty free lab grown mini organs could dramatically reduce need for animal testing. This is by Nicole Axworthy at Veg News, which is my go-to source for all medical commentary, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So there's a couple interesting things here. So first and foremost, just about every drug, every vaccine, every medicine you take, it's been tested on animals before it goes to clinical trials in humans. It's tested on rodents or maybe some other animal on occasion, depending on what the drug is or whatever. But this has raised a lot of animal welfare concerns over the years, particularly by websites like Veg News and Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which is an animal rights motivated group and so forth. So there's these concerns about taking care of animals, stop testing drugs on them and so forth. Um, And so one of the solutions that's popped up, there's been multiple studies like this, but the idea is 
let's develop organoids or let's develop some kind of, some kind of a cell culture or, or, you know, a synthetic organ, something that replicates the system you're trying to study based on how it functions in the human body without, you know, injecting a rat with an experimental cancer drug or, or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. this, so this way you're protecting animals to a certain extent, and you're also testing drugs in a way to make sure that they are safe for human use and that they're effective. They're going to have their intended purpose. So let me, and I, you can fill in the technical details on what they did, but here's just a quick rundown. Um, so this, this particular team of researchers, they isolated B cells from mouse spleens. They added uh, what's called cellular signaling molecules and structural components. And then they encapsulated everything in a synthetic hydrogel matrix. I'm sure you all know exactly what that is. <laughs> and then they took uh, vaccine candidates targeting, targeting a condition called rabbit fever, and there's no approved vaccine for these. Um, and then basically what they found is that this platform could be used to identify B cell clones that generate highly antigen specific antibodies, which have a, a wide variety of potential applications. So in other words, this seems like it could be a viable way to develop new vaccines, which seems pretty cool. And then of course, the wider implication is you could use this to test lots of different drugs because this platform seems to better replicate you know, what the human body functions like. So lots, again, lots to say here. Dr. Liza Dunn, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think this is early days. I think there's some very exciting science around this stuff. There are things called the organ chip where you can try to sort of mimic uh, an actual organ or an actual tissue um, when you are uh, trying out a drug. So one of, one of the things about drug studies is if you do it in vitro, so if you have a Petri dish and you have cells on a Petri dish and you pour the drug on the, on the cells, that's, you, could, you can get some information mm -hmm. about what's going on in intracellularly and how that cell's going to behave, but you also, though, don't get a complete picture because when you take a drug, you're not, you're, when you take a drug by mouth, let's just say, it goes through a whole complicated system before it gets absorbed. It goes through your GI tract and your stomach's acidity, right? So you have to make sure that the drug gets through that acid matrix and then your gut, it tends to be more alkaline, so more basic. And so where you're absorbing it, um, it matters when it in and how what the pH is matters. So just because you see something in a petri dish doesn't mean doesn't um, doesn't mean that, that you're getting the whole picture because you've got multiple different cell types along your GI tract, and when you absorb it into the bloodstream, there are all sorts of processes it goes through before it gets to the bloodstream. So you can get some basic information. You can also get what we call cytotoxicity. So cytotoxicity is when you actually pour something on a cell and it kills the cells. Now, that might not be because the drug is actually going to kill the cells. It might be because, let's say, that the drug is carried in a vehicle that interacts with cell membranes and damages the cell membranes and will kill it. So, so in vitro studies by themselves, just looking at naked cells, aren't always indicative of, aren't always correct. They don't always give you um, a good idea of what's happening. So let me give you a really good example. You can say something is an endocrine disruptor. You might think is an endocrine disruptor. If you have endocrine cells in a Petri dish and you pour, you pour a chemical on those endocrine cells and those cells die, well, it may be because the, the substance you're pouring on it is an ensopy matrix and the soapy matrix breaks up the cells and kills the cells. So you mistakenly think 
that the, the chemical is killing the cells because it's an endocrine disruptor when it's actually just killing the cells because it's soap, because that's what soap does to cells. Um, so to get around that and that you, we normally do animal testing, right? So you have a system where you're feeding an animal something and it gets absorbed and you get a much better idea of what percentage gets absorbed, where it gets absorbed and things like that. And you get so you get a whole system-wide effect. But a lot of people are like, oh, no, this is a problem because you're doing animal studies and the animals die. And so we need to come up with a, a happy medium. So the happy medium at the moment is these novel alternative methods of testing, which is trying to manage animal testing, where they will do an organ and a chip. So you'll have a mini heart, or in this case with the vaccines, it's a, a, a lymph node um, mm-hmm. you're, and that lymph nodes generating um, antibodies. And then you can harvest those antibodies. Um, that's potentially great technology for some drug development. For example, um, one of the ways we get anti-venom for snake bites is by injecting horses or sheep with venom, and then they make up, they make the antibodies and you harvest those antibodies, right? Um, if you could actually just have a lymph node do, to do that, right, organ on a chip, you could actually make, anti-venom is extraordinarily expensive and very difficult to um, keep stable. So you could, you could have large quantities for, of anti-venom um, by using, you know, th- these lymph nodes to make antibodies to the venom. So there are all sorts of, there's great potential here. Um, but once again, we've got to still tweak it because just because you have one organ doesn't mean you have a whole system-wide thing. And there may be um, certain organs that are more productive than others. I think it's going to be very easy to say a lymph node is making antibodies, but it's going to be a little bit harder to say that when we give this particular drug and we have a little mini heart, we can see what it's doing to that heart, but you're then expecting that whole drug to get absorbed and stuff like that. So there's a lot more that needs to be worked out, but it's very interesting science at the moment. Yeah, and let me give a let me give some real world examples of this. This is from the the, the Max Planck Institute in Germany, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big name in in the science world. Yeah. But, but they have a whole page dedicated to defending animal research, which I thought was interesting because my initial take was. If this works and it seems like it does, you know, what the hell, right? But what they point out several things here. So they point out that, um, for example, without animal testing, we would not have COVID vaccines because yep, they, were all, they, they were all tested on rodents. Um, I believe it was all rodents. They were all tested on animals in any case. And, um, right, I, I would not have been comfortable giving it to my pregnant wife or nope. taking, it, taking it myself without reasonably robust data, given how quickly they were developed. It just wouldn't have been possible without animal research. And along the same lines of what you're talking about with really complex systems, they point out that it's not possible to develop drugs for neurological and psychological conditions without actually testing those medicines on the on brains that are in living organisms like rodents. Because you have a brain barrier and all sorts of things that have the layers that it's got to get through to 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 to, to, to operate to work on the tissue of uh, tissue that's targeted right right yeah so so that makes a lot of sense to me and i think this this sort of brings up a divide in this conversation because my concern as always is for humans especially the Mm -hmm. little ones that i'm related to right i care about people i care about my kids i care about you know what i mean care about poor kids on the other side of the world if that you know if getting kids in africa vaccines that could save their lives means injecting a few rodents sorry not a hard choice for me that's that's a good choice 
Yeah. So, I, so one concern I have is that, and again, this is from a vegan news site, and it's not a terrible article, but it's painting this in a very, very favorable light. And they quote the PMRC, I think, yeah, oh, PCRM. Physician. Yeah, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And they, they present themselves as we're this massive body of physicians. In reality, it's a handful of doctors and a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of animal rights activists. So, yes. and, I, and a, no disrespect, I don't really care what they think because they have a very clear agenda and it's not medicine, right? It's not making medicine better. Um, so that said, this is really impacting the regulatory world. So there, there are big pushes to move away from animal testing. I don't know how you know realistic that is, um, but and at the moment, they're you know they want to test and retest and retest things that are actually already on the market. And we know what they do. Right. We know that they and how they work and everything. And so having a vehicle for more regulation around uh, a model that is not well-developed is cost taxpayers a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I think that, that, that we need to, that animals are, you know, part of uh, the safety um, testing that we do that are, that, that's required by law and it's for, it's for safety. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. And, and again, I was critical just now, but this, this could be a benefit in that a lot of the studies that we have to rip apart on this show their cell culture studies or their animal studies where they force feed a rat, you know, 800 times the, the legally allowed dose of glyphosate. And they go, well, they got stomach cancer after we did that. It's like, well, yeah, obviously. So maybe in those cases you could say, you know, test it on this organ chip. And then if you get good data that way, maybe we have something to worry about here. Exactly. Or, you know, they'll inject in the, the stomach, they'll inject substances in the stomachs of animals. Yeah. That's not how we give, that's, I mean, most of the time we give <laughs> mouth, right? Or right. IV. So they'll use roots of roots that are of administration that are not real, realistic. Yeah, that's a very good point. I don't know any farmers or pesticide applicators that stick a, a needle into their gut and inject glyphosate, right? So that's no, not a... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's not the way to do it on the label. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you do that, you know, yeah. the results are your fault. Sorry, no one's telling you to do that. Um, but nonetheless, it's a good point, right? It sounds like maybe even if this isn't ready for prime time for drug development, it could have some uses. Yeah. Because because in that case, you know, I'm not, I don't think animal rights are a thing. We can have that conversation some other day. But I also don't want to inject rats with insecticide or weed killer, right? Obviously, they're, they were not supposed to get <laughs> we're not supposed to get these chemicals right the weeds are or the pests that eat your plants are okay so there's some value in here i just i'm i'm necessarily cautious i think pumping the brakes on this animal rights stuff because i think that is that could get away from us is all yes i agree with you and the safety is the most important thing yes absolutely okay all right well we're going to call it a day with those three stories i we could keep talking about these for hours and sometimes i would like to do that i think my wife would get mad at me though so i'm not gonna do that. <laughs> okay all right but we'll be back next week for episode 218 thank you for joining us as always in the meantime follow us on twitter uh at dr liza md on twitter i believe did i get that right yep okay right. okay memory's still working i am at cam j english we'd love to answer questions talk about the show argue with you if you're so inclined, that's fine too. Um, follow, follow the Genetic Literacy Project. They are at Genetic Literacy. As I say every week, they put this whole thing on for us. And with that, we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.